about something that is very, very, very special to my heart. We're going to be talking about worship and scripture and how these two things sit together. So what I'd love for us to do is we're going to be in Romans 12.1. We already had a little sneak peek from our time of blessing, but Romans 12.1 will be our teaching text for today. Um, so I'll give you all a moment to just get there. Um, Eric is going to do the honors of reading um, God's word today. What? So, yes. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> um, and so I believe uh, everyone says uh, this is the word of the Lord, but I say thanks. Uh, this is opposite. Yes, yeah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yes. Okay, gotcha. Uh-huh. <laughs> Let's. Romans 12, 1. I am in King James. I'm just kidding. Yes, <laughs> Uh, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'll just pray with me for a moment, Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity to get to teach. I thank you for the ability to get to open up the scriptures and to grow and to come to know you more, Father, and to grow deeper in love with you. Holy Spirit, I invite you right now to uh, begin to lead us and guide us. I ask that you would guide every word that is out of my mouth. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would bring revelation and understanding to um, each person who is in this room, that they would come to know how deep the Father's love is for them and how out of that love our response is to worship you. And so I pray, God, that you would be exalted in all things. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So we are currently in our series, The Kingdom Has Come. And our series, I want to remind us of a few things. Our series has two goals that we want to make sure is solidified and accomplished throughout our time. Number one, the goal is to understand what is the kingdom of God. And we all got to hear from Mel how she beautifully described that to us. Secondly, and where we will spend the majority of our time in this series is the question, how do we live in the kingdom now? How do we live in the kingdom now? Uh, we have said that we are a gathered people in the city for the renewal of all things. And as a gathered people, we live under the common narrative. The kingdom has come. Yes. And we pursue a Romans 12 ethic together. And this ethic is summarized by abiding with zealous devotion, serving with sincere love and remembering with humble peacemaking. And we live in the overlap of heaven and earth, sitting together. And as agents of renewal and reconciliation, we have to ask ourselves, how do we live in this overlap? How do we live on the earth knowing that the kingdom has come? And the way in which we demystify and humanize this question and become a people spiritually formed into a life of abiding serving and remembering is through spiritual practices. Spiritual practices are the how or the way we live in the, or the how or the way that we live in the kingdom of God here and now. Spiritual practices are the ways we get to the God who can bring true satisfaction for the longings of our soul. Or as Johnny said last week, the soul growls inside of us. And it's really easy to look at something and say, I want that. 
but it's a completely different thing to orient your life to it. And if you don't have an orienting of your life to the thing that you say that you desire, you will live a life that is left with just admiring and longing, not living and practicing. And so this is why spiritual practices are so important to us as followers of Jesus. Spiritual practices are the things that take our place of, I long for that, I want that, and it gives us something tangible to practice, to live that out. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I hate to run. Some of, some of you might like to run. I hate to run. I have only ever run what was required of me for any of my sports that I played in high school. So when I played volleyball and basketball, I would do just what my coach required. I never, play, I never ran outside of that. There was one particular time where my coach said, hey, you need to run track so that way you can stay, uh, stay fit during off season. And I said, okay. I ran track and did those relay sprints and I hated every second of it. And I remember in my 20s, I would hear people talk about a runner's high. Anyone heard about runner's high? And I had never accomplished or felt such a thing. And I decided maybe the reason why I don't like to run is that I don't really know enough about it and I haven't given myself to it fully. And so Johnny has and is a runner, a very good runner. And so he started training me in like how to run and how to run properly and where to plant your feet and all the things. And I gave a good three months to trying to like really develop a love for running and maybe just maybe like get this runner's high that everyone talks about. And if you've, I don't know if any of you have ever watched people run, it is really entertaining if you've not done it to just watch, watch as people run. There are some people when they run, they look like gazelles, just like floating through the air, effortlessly just running and it's like, Every stride is perfect and like there's no effort. It's just beautiful to watch. And then there's other people when they run where you're like, oh, you struggling. Like you, this is hard for you. They're clunky and their face looks like they're in agony and torture. Like that's me. That's me. 100%. Like the moment I begin to run, I feel like the Tin Man. Like all of a sudden I'm heavy and clanky and everything just feels like thud, thud, thud. And so I realized... (laughs) After this time of going, I really want to try to learn how to run and love running and practice running, I realized I didn't love it enough to orient my life to it. And I have watched runners, the ones that I talked about, the gazelles, and I look at them and go, I wish I could do that. I would love to be able to run like that. But I don't love it enough to be able to ever get where they are. I don't love it enough to discipline my life around when I wake up to run and the types of clothes and shoes that I buy and the types of food that I eat and the type of sleep that I'm gonna get. I don't love it that much. And often the things that we look to that we say, I long for that, I want that, whether it be an amazing runner, a talented singer, a gifted speaker, a faithful follower of Jesus, Jesus himself as we read the scriptures, we will look at that and say, oh, I want to do that. I want to live that way. But we'll stop there. We'll stop there. And we'll just sit in a place of longing and desire. Longing and desire, never living and practicing. And so our spiritual practices that we are going to be committed to as a community and how we will be developing leaders unto are the following. We have a a slide for them. Prayer, fasting, silence and solitude 
scripture, simplicity, living in community, Sabbath, and generosity. Prayer, fasting, silence and solitude. Johnny spoke on that beautifully last week. Scripture, which is part of what we'll be talking about today. Simplicity, living in community, Sabbath, and generosity. Just to recap last week, Johnny beautifully covered prayer, fasting, silence, and solitude. And prayer, simply put, is how we speak to God and how we listen to God. And it is in the place of fasting and silence and solitude that we position ourselves to have a heightened awareness of the hunger growl in our soul that can only be filled with Christ. And as we fast from food, we feast on God. And as we practice silence and solitude, we become a present people, presently connected and attended to God. We silence the noise and the distractions that keep us from facing the reality of where our soul is, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The posture of prayer in the place of fasting, silence, and solitude forms us into a people who are able to be still and know that he is God. And today we are going to be talking about scripture and worship. Now you might be thinking, worship, I don't see that on our list of spiritual practices, and you were right about that. It is not on there. And the reason for that is that worship is the overarching posture of our lives as we engage in these spiritual practices. We pray, we fast, we practice silence and solitude, we read scripture, we live simply, we live in community, we practice Sabbath and generosity, all unto worship. Spiritual practices deepen our lives of worship. Worship is often deeply misunderstood. We think that worship is a time where music is played, we often think it's the first part of any type of worship, of like a service or a gathering, that first 15 to 30 minutes, depending on your context, where we sing together and we say, oh, that is what worship is. And while that is an expression of worship, it is not the totality of what worship is. Um, worship, as our teaching text today, says that it is bringing our whole lives to God as a living sacrifice. Worship is our whole life laid before him in surrender, obedience, and sacrifice. Now, throughout our time today, I'm going to be paralleling our knowledge and our love for God with the analogy of marriage. Not only is this a reality that we see on earth, but it is a reality that we see in the kingdom of God. We, you and I sitting in this room, we are the bride of Christ. Jesus is our bridegroom. And we are only able to say that the kingdom has come because it was inaugurated with Jesus' arrival on earth, fulfilled on the work of the cross, and completed once and for all at his final return. He will come again as the bridegroom, coming for his bride, you and me. And in your created essence, your imago Dei, as image bearers of the living God, you will worship. Mm -hmm. Every single one of you will worship. Right now, every one of you are living a life of worship. And the question is, who or what you are worshiping? 
And who or what you are worshiping is who or what you find most beautiful and what you love the most. What you love the most receives the best of your time, your thoughts, your pursuits, and your money. It's the thing that you lay awake at night longing for and saying, oh, if I could just do this, if I could just know that, if I could just have this, if I could just get there. You could be worshiping your career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yep, come on. Your career, your spouse, your children, your pets, football, wanting to be in a dating relationship, building a business, travel. Those are just to list a few. And none of these things are inherently bad. Just as the longings are not necessarily bad. Longing is the soul growl that has been put inside of you to point you to the one and only who can satisfy your longings. And that is God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. But our misaligned longings will lead us to worship false gods. We will begin to long for things apart from our understanding of what Scripture says about those things, and the things we long for will become the gods that we worship. And we see in the life of Jesus where he was even confronted with the question of who will you worship? We see this when Satan comes to tempt Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. He had just come off of a 40-day fast, so you can imagine he's physically weak, mentally, like he's weak from this. So let's read this together, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah. There's a longing there. He was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see where his longing was aligned with Scripture. And then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. This passage shows us that even Jesus himself was confronted with this question. 
and the way in which he was tempted by Satan was not only with the longings of his own heart, but also with trying to take scripture and twist it and distort it and deceive it. But Jesus actively stood against Satan and his schemes of temptation and promises of longings fulfilled by counterfeit splendors. These counterfeit splendors will betray us every time. And we must be an away from me Satan kind of people because we know scripture and we know who we worship. Jesus stands on scripture to inform his understanding of who he is. He's the son of God and who he worshiped, the father. And that was how he withstood the temptation that Satan brought his way. And most temptation, compromise, and sin that we see in our own lives will boil down to you not remembering who you are. And that is you are a son and daughter of the living God, a co-heir with Christ and who you worship, which is God, the father, son, and spirit. And will you be entranced with the kingdoms of the world and their splendor? Or will you worship the Lord your God and serve him only? This is the question that Jesus was faced with. This is the question that we are faced with. And so we see that scripture and worship are deeply connected together. Scripture is the way we come to know and love and worship the one true God so that every longing of our heart can be aligned and fulfilled. (coughs) Aligned and fulfilled. So let's look at what is scripture and what does scripture tell us? So scripture is the inspired, inerrant, and sufficient word of God. And because it is this, it is the ultimate authority for our life, our faith, and our morals. We see in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We also see in Hebrews 4, 12, where it says the word of God is alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart and what does scripture tell us scripture is the overarching story of redemption where god's love for his creation is demonstrated through the constant pursuit of his people i want to say that one more time Scripture gives us the overarching story of redemption, where God's love for his creation is demonstrated through the constant pursuit of his people. No matter how many times they forgot, no matter how many times they sinned against God by worshiping anything and everything but him, he pursued. Time and time again, we see God come in and ransom his people from their misaligned worship. God's love was ultimately demonstrated through the Son of God, Jesus, coming to earth to live a perfect life, inaugurating the kingdom of God as he saved the lost, healed the sick, and set the demon oppressed free. 
He fulfilled the, the prophecies of Scripture and was the spotless lamb once and for all who paid the sacrifice for your sin and for my sin. He paid the price for our misaligned worship. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, we were made right before him. This is the good news. We were made right before him. We were made a holy and righteous people created to love, serve, and worship God. And our lives became the dwelling place for the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. As temples no longer made of brick and of mortar, but of heart and of flesh, we became a people who would be living, breathing, walking places of worship. We would be carriers of his presence, stewards of meeting places, so that we and others can encounter the living God. And Jesus' final sacrifice on the cross, it cost him. It cost him his life. And worship will cost you. The very first time worship is found in scripture is found around another anthem and theme of sacrifice. We see it in Genesis 22. We see where God tells Abraham to take his son Isaac, his beloved firstborn son, and to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Abraham trusts and obeys God, and so he goes. And after a three-day journey, he finds the place that God told him to go and tells his servants, stay here, stay with the donkeys, stay with our things, while the boy and I go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Do you hear the faith? We will worship, and we will come back to you. He knew the heart of the God that he served. And just as Abraham is about to offer his son as a sacrifice, God stops him and says, Do not lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. God provided a ram and Abraham and Isaac sacrificed that ram as a burnt offering and called the place the Lord will provide. The rabbis have something that's called the law of first mention. And, and what that means is, is that where something is first mentioned in Scripture, it gives you the definition of what that word is really about. So law first mentioned, it's carried through the, with the traditions and the history of the rabbis. And this story is where we see worship first mentioned. And we see that worship is sacrificial and it's costly. And we also see that worship is deeply connected to trust and knowing the God that you worship. How do we come to know the God that we're going to worship? It's through the scriptures. Yeah. Scriptures are the way that we come to know the God that we worship, to love the God that we worship. And in worship, we must be encountering the God of the scriptures. In order to rightly worship, we have to be rooted in scripture. To engage in a life of worship where you do not know the God of the scriptures will lead to a life of striving and a lot of failure. Spiritual practices will begin to feel like a weight that is on you instead of something that is meant to free you. 
and a gathering where we come together and we're expressing our worship, our love to God, and we're ministering to Him through song, it's going to feel awkward to you because you don't know the God that you're singing about. It's like the wedding day. The wedding day is the culmination, right, of joy and celebration with the people that you love most. But it's like being a bride who has no idea of who the groom is at the end of the aisle. And to know God and to love God, it takes time and it takes devotion. It takes time and it takes devotion. We are headed to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Every one of us. In Revelation 19, 6-7, it says, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. His bride has made herself ready. The bride of Christ, that's you and that's me, we will be united with the bridegroom. And it will be glorious, full of celebration and wonder and joy and delight. It will be the greatest party you have ever experienced. Wow, can't we? Yes. <laughs> but here and now, we are making ourselves ready. Yes. We are making ourselves ready by coming to know the groom who will be at this wedding. And this takes time and it takes devotion. And if we don't understand this, we will become a disillusioned and biblically illiterate people. We will become like a bride in an arranged marriage, covenanted to a man she doesn't know or love. Sounds terrible, right? But that is what we will become if we don't understand that to know God takes time and devotion. Our disillusionment and our illiteracy are connected to the culture that is actively seeking to form us. Culture says, it must feel good to be good. If I'm not feeling it, then I don't do it. It's got to be easy if it's worth doing. Just give me some sound bites. If it doesn't get me in the first 30 seconds, I'm out. And we show up to the word of God like this, expecting our love for God to be this instantaneous, feel good, better be easy love. We think we'll be captured by love for a God that we've barely read about in the scriptures. And because we didn't have that moment within the first few minutes of reading, we begin to wonder and wander. We get distracted by other things that will give us a quick fix, that quick fix of it feels good. And we begin to make God look more like what we want and what we think feels good, or even what the sound bites of scripture that you find on your social media stories portray. We become the walking dead, lulled to sleep by the fleeting counterfeit feelings of goodness on this earth that distract us into oblivion. Illiterate, disillusioned Christians will not be marked by renewal. We will be marked by apathy, compromise, and longing that is never fulfilled. 
we will worship the very things that will destroy us. Anyone who is married knows that their spouse did not come to be the person that is now their spouse, their husband or their wife, by some simple happenstance or just because fate threw them together. These are fairy tales. And when you're married, you know that's a fairy tale. It's not real. It was through intentional times of getting to know one another, consecrating yourself from pursuing any other in the same way that you come to know the person that will become your wife or your husband. And we so often approach knowing God like a lazy lover who rarely shows up, rarely puts in the time, and doesn't remain devoted. We show up to scripture to worship gatherings wondering why it just doesn't feel like we're connected. We show up as the bride who doesn't know her groom. And then we begin to blame the venue, also known as the church, or the DJ, the worship leader, or the guests, Christians, or the MC, the pastors, for why a life fully given to Jesus just isn't worth it. And Psalm 27, 4 says this, One thing that I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my lives, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to see him in his temple. What do we see in this passage? We see that there is knowing takes time all the days of my life. All the days of my life. There's never a time in which we will say, oh, I figured out God. I fully know God. We will spend all the days of our life searching out the glorious riches found in Jesus. And we also see that it takes devotion. It says in Psalm 27, 4, this only do I seek. This only do I seek. And when Jesus becomes most beautiful to you, he becomes your treasure. And we are able to gaze and see the beauty of God in the scriptures. And our only response will be to worship. It is, worship is the response of a heart who gazes on the beauty of the bridegroom and says, you are most beautiful to me. You are who I love the most. You are who I want to know the most. And worship is our response to that. The God that we come to know with time and devotion is a God who demonstrated his love for you and me while we were still sinners. That's what Romans 5, 8 tells us. He gave his entire life for us while we were still sinners. Not after we said, we choose you, Lord, we follow you. But while we were sinners, he gave his life. And our response is to give him ours. To give him our life, the God who fulfills every longing of our heart. We come to know and love him through scripture. And we express that in our worship. This is really important that I really want to make clear is that as we seek to know the God of the scriptures, what we grow in, in our knowledge and our understanding, it's not meant to puff us up. We're not meant to become like hypocritical Pharisees who can quote every scripture and tell you every law and tell you everything that scripture says, but their hearts were far, 
far from the God that they knew about. Our knowledge is meant to deepen our love. And when our love is deepened, our worship will be deepened. So with this understanding, how do we do this? How do we live in the kingdom of God now through the practice of reading scripture and a life of worship? How do we do it? I want to give us some, a few practicals because I think it's really impo- important. Simply put, scripture is your daily bread. Scripture is your daily bread. It isn't your Costco run where you go one time and store up and then you show up a month later because you're like, oh, I'm, I'm running empty. It is your daily bread. And it is meant to be consumed consistently so that the longings, the soul growls, can be aligned with the truth of Scripture. Scripture is meant to be consumed consistently so that the longings, the soul growls, can be aligned with the truth of Scripture. And so I want to uh, give us something that is an ancient practice um, of how to engage with Scripture. Because often when we say read the Bible, right? You're like, okay, this is a big book. (laughs) Do I just start reading it? Where do I start? How do I read it? Should I read a certain number of chapters a day? What does it look like to read the scriptures? Okay. And so this ancient practice is a way that we invite an active participation of the spirit to bring revelation, which is understanding, conviction and action into our time of reading. Okay. It's inviting the spirit to actively participate with the spirit of God to bring revelation, conviction, and action. And this ancient practice is called Lectio Divina. Lectio Divina. Okay, so we have a slide here for you. And it's comprised of four things. Okay, and this has been practiced throughout thousands of years of church history. One, you're going to read. You're going to read your passage. Okay, and you're going to ask yourself, what is this passage saying? And it's really good to have a Bible commentary with you. And we can have some discussions even after this of some really good commentaries to have. Um, If you remember when we were talking about women in leadership, one of the things that we talked about as a hermeneutical principle is that just the plain reading of the text is not going to give you the full understanding of its meaning. And this is where commentaries will come in and help us. Commentaries will help us understand the context of what we are reading so that we can interpret it correctly and then apply it. CIA. Yes, if you're ever wondering. Stands for CIA. There you go. Secondly, you're going to meditate. This is also known as silence and solitude. If you remember, Johnny said silence and solitude is not just a weekend away. It can be practiced in small moments of our days. So this is a moment where you get to practice silence and solitude. And this is where you quiet yourself and you just listen to the voice of God. And then you're going to begin to pray. And you're going to speak with the Lord about the passage that you read. 
thank God for his word. Ask him to lead you into deeper understanding. And then lastly, you're going to contemplate, what is God trying to teach you? And you're going to put into practice what he has told you. So read, meditate, pray, and contemplate. And one thing that I would just encourage, even before you do all of that, invite the Holy Spirit into your time of reading. Holy Spirit, you are welcome into this time. Lead me in this. The Holy Spirit is the one who leads us to all truth. Now, when you do this is up to you. Okay? There is no like, it has to be done at this time of day. What we see Jesus model is that he often arose early to meet with the Father. So I think that's important to weigh. I think it's also important to weigh because if we're all really honest with ourselves, anything that we wait to do at the end of our day, it doesn't often happen. It's true. It's true. For me personally, if I wait to the end of the day, it doesn't happen. And even if I have the moment to do it, my physical body is, is exhausted. I will begin to read and I can tell I'm having a really hard time engaging with the scriptures. The gift of time with the Lord in the morning, it sets the tone of your entire day. It sets the tone of how you're going to engage with every facet of your day. We operate from a place of being formed by the truth of the word of God so that we can then live our day as worship unto him. And so I will contend with you. It's really hard to do that if you don't do it first thing when it's your best. But when you do that is ultimately up to you. It's just a matter of saying, I'm going to do it. It's going to be consistent. It's going to be daily. Hashtag morning LD. Oh, I was like, got it. Awesome. All right. So let's move on to worship. And we're going to talk about worship in, in two different ways. We're going to talk about worship as the life that we live, everything that we do being as an act of worship unto God. And then we're going to hone in on our times where worship is being expressed through song and instruments and singing that part of most gatherings at the beginning where we're singing to the Lord. So from the place of this being something that we do worship as a life that we live and that we give to God, worship is ascribing worth to God as we communicate and demonstrate his value to us. Worship is ascribing worth to God. And we ascribe that worth through what we communicate and what we demonstrate. And demonstrating value is going to cost you something. It will always cost you. And worship is always meant to be expressed. It doesn't lie dormant in your heart. Anything or anyone you truly love will have a tangible demonstration or expression of that love. Think about it. Anything that you love, whether it be a person or a thing, there is some sort of expression or demonstration of that love. It doesn't just sit in your heart. 
it starts there, but it's meant to be moved outward. And when we understand that worship is the response of our love for God and our ministry to God, we are the priesthood. This is how we minister. We realize that worship is expressed by the life that we live. And that life is marked with surrender, obedience, devotion, and consecration. And everything that we do becomes an act of worship to the Lord. And when we understand our days and the tasks of our days and the responsibilities of our days and the relationships found in our days, when we begin to see all of those things under the umbrella as an act of worship unto our God, this is when renewal happens. This is when you begin to be an agent of renewal in every sphere of your life. This is when we see the kingdom of heaven invading earth. We see the kingdom of heaven invading your job, your marriage, your friendships, your dating relationships, your conversations, the decisions that you make, how you spend your money, where you devote your time. It all begins to be marked by worship. And when something is marked by worship, you begin to say, does this bring God glory? Does this demonstrate my love for God? Does this display to a hurting and broken people the radical love of God? Our worship should show the world how valuable God is and that we have a Savior who is worth loving and living for. Our worship should show the world how valuable our God is and that we have a Savior who is worth living and loving, living for and loving. Now, we also have times where we gather together and we worship in a way that is expressed through music and through song. So worship and praise, when we are singing, it's simply the expressed word of God put to melody, put to song. And I want to give us a few ways that we see that scripture shows us how we worship God rightly through our expressed posture. Often we make expression in worship about your personality or your musical ability or where you land on the Enneagram or your denominational background. But your expression of worship has nothing to do with any of those things. Our expression of worship has everything to do with how the King of Kings and Lord of Lords has said that he wants to be worshiped. And so I want to give us a biblical understanding of how we rightly express our worship to a God that we love and a God that we know. These outward expressions demonstrate an inward posture of the heart. And when you've been living your life day in and day out, week in and week out, knowing that everything you're doing is unto a life of worship, these outward expressions will become a very natural response. So let's look at them. One, bowing. Shaka. Did I say that right, Johnny? Great. Shaka. This is the Hebrew word that is most often translated as worship. Proskuneo. That's the Greek word, which means to prostrate. Prostrate yourself. (laughs) Before God. (laughs) Hi. 
Hey. <laughs> when we bow, what that is demonstrating is lordship and submission. And it's the external posture of a heart that is not proud. Exodus 33, 3 gives us this passage that is, uh, it leaves me in awe and like, Lord, help me to never live this way. The people of God, the Israelites, they are in the wilderness. And God says to them, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. However, I will not go up in your midst. I will not go with you. You are a stiff-necked people. And I might destroy you on the way. Yikes. Uh-huh. So what is stiff-necked? Let's all do something. Ready? Everyone take your hand and put it on the back of your head. Okay. Now stiffen your neck muscles as tight as you can make them, as if your life depends on it. Tighten it, tighten it. Now, with your neck muscles still really tight, try to push your head down. Huh, your head's not moving. (laughs) That is a stiff-necked people. That is a people who refuse to bow. That is a people who are marked with pride. And that is what God is saying to the Israelites. You are a people who are marked with pride. You continue to ignore my ways and forget who I've called you to be. And so I'm going to give you the promise of the land flowing with milk and honey, but my presence won't be with you. How often do we mistake the promise for his presence? They're not synonymous. They're not the same thing. His promises to us still happen because he is faithful. But it does not mean that we are marked with his presence. And we see that God is not enthroned on the pride of man, but on the praises of man. Wherever the people of God praise, God comes. And he establishes reign and his kingdom, and he makes a home there. He makes a home where we praise. And so when we bow, it is an outward expression of an inward posture of our heart that we say, God, We don't want to be full of pride. We say that you are Lord and that you are King. And we submit to your ways, not our ways. Your presence is what we are after, not just what you can give us. The next thing that we see is singing. So singing in scripture is not a suggestion, but it's a command. Interesting, right? Because I would imagine many people would go, well, dang it, I don't know how to sing. I'm not a good singer. So how do I do this? Psalm 30 verse 4 says, Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of His, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holy name. And so I want to encourage you in is that we don't sing to God because we're good singers. We sing because He's a good God. And the room that you stand in is not your audience. The Father is your audience, and He loves to hear you sing. And so whether you know how to sing on pitch or you don't, doesn't matter. He loves to hear you sing, so sing praise to His name. 
Next, we have instruments. Second Chronicles 5, verse 13. And I also want to point out there are so many scriptures that speak to these different expressions for the sake of our time. I had to just hone in on which one felt the most. Right, yes. uh, but there are so many. So I would encourage you, if there's any place of you that's like, I want to understand more, search the scriptures. They are there, or I can even tell you. Second um, Chronicles 5, verse 13. It happened when the trumpet players and singers made one sound to praise and give thanks to the Lord. And when, and when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and all the instruments of music and praised the Lord saying, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. That the house, the house of the Lord was filled with the cloud. That cloud is synonymous with his presence was filled with his presence. And Psalm 33, verse 3 says, Sing to him a new song. Play an instrument skillfully with a joyful shout. There are contexts where instruments are seen as um, disordered worship. And I don't know how you get there. I don't know how you get there. I also don't know if you've ever had a moment where you've just heard musicians who are playing as an act of worship before the Lord and when there's no singing there is something otherworldly that begins to happen when you just see all of these instruments coming together the sounds of heaven that come from that instruments were not man-made they were God-made they were God's plan on how we are able to worship him rightly Next, we have shouting. This is one that can often uh, feel uncomfortable to people. But we see that in Scripture that we have shouts of joy, and there's multiple references for that. We have shouts of praise, and we have shouts of victory. And I think what I would just want to say around that is that shouting is the natural response of one who is filled with joy, praise, and victory. Just think about what happens when a touchdown is scored. People don't just sit there and go, that's cool. (laughs) What do you hear? Let's go! Oh my gosh! There's shouting. There There is so much noise coming out of someone because it's a moment that is showing praise and joy and victory. And this is how we are meant to see and know God rightly is that when we sing about the express word of God, we are singing of the joy, the praise, and the victory of God. And so shout for joy, shout for praise, shout with victory. There are so many beautiful stories that we can't go into where God does something so miraculous through the shouts of his people. Walls falling down through the shouts of his people not through a sledgehammer or some big tool, the shouts of his people. Next, we have clapping. Psalm 47.1, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a joyful voice. These are built-in percussion instruments. And it's really cool. There's something about when there's clapping that it just lifts the room. Even today, I was so struck by it. There was a moment in the bridge of Make Room where I started to hear clapping, and you could just feel it kind of increasing the faith in the room with the clap. So clap your hands. 
shout to God with a joyful voice. All right, raise, raising of hands. Psalm 134, verse 2. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Hands are some of the most naturally expressive parts of our body. Some more than others, me, I am incredibly expressive with my hands, but you talk to anybody and at some point in time, you're gonna see them moving their hands. It's the natural expression of the human body. And uplifted hands are a posture of a people who are, who are a living sacrifice. It communicates surrender and devotion because we are a holy priesthood we dedicate our hands to acts of holiness and we lift our hands to bless God's heart. Even when you just think about a child, when a child runs up to their parent, what do they do? They don't usually just stand there and go, hold me. I need you. I want you. They lift up their hands. They lift up their hands. And this is what we're doing in worship. We're looking to our father God and saying, I need you. I love you. I surrender to you. My soul longs for you. Lastly, dancing. Now, this is one um, that most often is associated with if you're really, 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 really charismatic. And again, the Bible says no such thing. This isn't about personality or your talent or what type of denomination you come from. Psalm 149 verse 3 says, Let them praise his name with dancing. Let them sing praises unto him with the tambourine and the harp. Dancing is the expression of a joyful people who have been released from the bondage of sin and death. Even going back to a child, the natural response of a child when a song comes on that they love, what do they do? They just start dancing. They start dancing, they start twirling. They don't care. It's just the response of I hear this and I begin to dance. And dancing for us as the children of the living God is our natural response. When we're full of so much joy and thankfulness for the God who has set us free. And I would dare to say that dancing is an expression of worship that that has been the most dormant. And I think it's dormant due to its perversion in our world. Dancing has been deeply, deeply perverted. It has been something that the enemy has taken, an expression of worship, and he has used it to pervert, to taunt, to seduce. And I would say as the people of God, let's bring renewal to this. Let's bring renewal to what dancing is meant to be in the kingdom of God. Because Zephaniah 3.17 says that God dances over you. He dances over you. And so when you dance, if the Lord leads, he's dancing with you. And so I believe that there's an invitation for us today. To be a people who live in the kingdom of God as those who are deeply rooted to the word of God so that we can be free to deeply worship God. And as we renew our mind through the reading of scripture, we will live out renewal through our worship. And your life depends on this. Why? Because you are worshiping something or someone. There is nothing that you can do to change that. As an image bearer, you will worship.
And I would hate for you to settle with a mediocre cultural Christianity where you become content with seeing his promises without his presence. Where scripture is so far from you that you become so stiff-necked that you wouldn't even know how to discern the difference. You are the bride of Christ. And you're meant to be married to the groom. You have union with Jesus Christ. Don't cheapen your pursuit of God to being like a one-night stand where you settle for a moment of encounter and experience that feels amazing. But it's void of intimacy and it's void of commitment. Don't do this because you aren't deeply formed by knowing and loving the God of the scriptures. Who you worship and how you express that worship will define the rest of your life. And every longing of your heart, it has its fulfillment. And his name is Jesus. And so therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, that you would present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, because this is your true and proper worship. And we're going to go into a time of communion and a time of reflection where we are allowing and giving room for the Holy Spirit to minister to us, to speak to us, and where we're giving room for us to minister to one another as the bride of Christ, the priesthood. And I have a few questions for us to just um, reflect over. Based on who or what receives the best of your time, thoughts, pursuits, and money, who or what are you worshiping? Are you disillusioned or illiterate of the scriptures? And based on where the Holy Spirit leads you in this, where do you need to repent? And what action do you need to take? Our worship will cost us. It will cost us. But the price that we're paying leads to life Mm -hmm. and to every longing fulfilled because we have a Savior and His name is Jesus. Mm -hmm. And He paid the price once and for all. And He paid it with His life. So we're going to take time to partake of that sacrifice. To partake of Jesus, the Son of God, who willingly laid down his life for you, even when you were still a sinner. Even when you are sinning, he laid down his life for you. And on the night before he was betrayed, he sat with his disciples, and he took the bread, and he took the wine, and he said to them, This is my body, broken for you. And he took the bread and he broke it. And then he took the wine and he said, This is my blood shed for you. Drink it. This is the price that I'm willing to pay for you. I'm willing to give my life for you.
And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And it's when we remember Jesus and the beautiful price, the costly price that he paid. And it's when we come to know and love the God of the scriptures that with joy in our hearts, not begrudgingly, not with some sense of if I have to, I will, but with joy in our hearts, we gladly respond and say, here I am, Lord, a living sacrifice, giving you my everything because I want to rightly and truly worship you. Worship is the response of a heart that knows and loves God. So Jesus, we say thank you for the price that you paid. The price that you paid cost your life. And we say thank you, Jesus, for that. We thank you for the hope that we have in you we thank you for the ability to get to be co-heirs with you, Jesus, ruling and reigning alongside of you. I thank you that we have the scriptures, that there was a time in history where the scriptures, as we know them, sitting together in one book, did not all sit together. There was only glimpses and parts of it. And we get to hold the full word of God in our hands. Forgive us, God, where we have taken the word of God lightly. Forgive us where we have let a Bible collect dust on our shelves. Forgive us, God. Forgive us for being a people who don't know the bridegroom and we complain and we feel disillusioned and we blame anything and everything. Forgive us, God. We want to be a people who worship you rightly. And we want to be a people who can say, I will pay the price of giving my life because you have paid the ultimate price. And the price I pay is not of shedding of my own blood, but it is simply laying my life down in surrender, obedience, devotion, and consecration to you, O oh God. And so Holy Spirit, I ask that you would lead us unto all truth. I ask that you would bring conviction. I ask that you would bring repentance. We desire the renewal of all things and we say, Lord, let renewal begin in us. In this room, on this day, let renewal begin in us. We love you, Jesus. We love you. Thank you for your spirit that draws near. When you're ready, feel free to come and take of the bread and the wine, remembering the price that was paid, the life of Jesus given for you.
And after you take the bread and the wine, I want to encourage you, allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart. And if you need to ask for prayer, boldly ask for it. If you feel led to pray for somebody else, boldly walk up and pray. So when you're ready, please take.